everybody. Welcome back to Shannon's Lumber Industry Update. Today's episode 87, and I'm focusing on reclaimed wood. But first, as always, let me say thank you to those who sponsor and support the show by going to patreon.com slash lumberupdate and becoming a patron. I sincerely appreciate that. As always, folks, keep your questions coming, keep your topic suggestions coming. That's what shapes the direction this show takes. So go to lumberupdate.com. You can fill out the contact form, or you can just email me directly at lumberupdate at gmail.com. And you know, actually, while you're over at lumberupdate.com, you'll see over in the sidebar, there's a little thing there that says improve your lumber buying, or just go to lumberupdate.com slash buying dash lumber, and you'll find a little opportunity in there to download a lesson I put together on how to go about building your lumber shopping list. We all can do takeoffs and generate a number of board feet and go to the lumber yard and say, I need 40 board feet or 400 board feet. But more often than not, that's not sufficient anymore. We need more than just a volume. We need more than that board foot number. We need to have an actual lumber shopping list. So this is a, a lesson I put together actually in the hand tool school that talks about building a lumber shopping list. And well, I'm giving it away. So go to lumberupdate.com slash buying dash lumber, and you can check that out. All right, let's talk about some reclaimed wood. I've mentioned in the past, but never really gone into great detail. And honestly, I don't have a huge amount of experience with it, which is why I have two guests on the show today representing Sawkill Lumber in Brooklyn, New York, with a millwork house in Windsor, Connecticut, or East Windsor, Connecticut. I have Alan Solomon and Klaus Armster here, who are, well, they wrote the book on reclaimed lumber. They are experts in reclaimed lumber, experts to the point that they've actually written the book. Um, I think it's called Reclaimed, isn't it? The book? Yeah. Reclaimed Wood, no. yeah. Reclaimed Wood, Reclaimed Wood, yeah. <laughs> um, I, I currently have a copy of it winging um, its way uh, to me. Uh, I know you offered to send me one, but it was only $13. I bought it. <laughs> it's the least I could do. I bought the book. So um looks particularly interesting. I love the cover. But uh, these gentlemen are experts in, in reclaimed lumber. And um, Alan works out of Salk Hills Brooklyn Lumber Yard. And Klaus, I believe, is out in Windsor, Connecticut at the Millwork facility. So we've got kind of two perspectives here on, on reclaimed lumber. Um, uh, Alan, why don't you... Uh, Tell us a little bit about what it is you do day in and day out, and give me give me your, your origin story. Tell me about when the radioactive spider bit you and how you got into <laughs> reclaimed lumber. Uh, yeah, uh, I guess I'll, say, I'll also say uh, Klaus's yard, he runs a larger facility at uh, Armster Reclaimed Lumber in okay. uh, upstate, so I guess we can get into that a little okay, later. But enough. in terms of, uh, but we did partner to start a uh, outpost here uh, in Brooklyn, uh, that we call Sawkill. It's a Dutch word that means sawmill Creek. And it was a site of an early sawmill in the 1630s, uh, on Manhattan Island that the Dutch built, uh, went back when, uh, you know, Manhattan was uh, prime logging territory. Yeah, sure. Um, but I just I know guess... I drive up the, I drive up the Salma river parkway every time I go to visit my in-laws in Maine, but that's, <laughs> That's that's further afield. That's across the Tappan Zee area. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a sawmill upstate too, and so they were building sawmills, you know, along the Hudson mm -hmm. uh, at different points, and you know they had advanced sawmill technology, I guess, for that 1600s era. 
but in terms of getting into reclaimed woods, I'd say uh, I had two starts. The first was my uh, father. He ran a scrapyard up in the Boston area uh, that he inherited from his father. Uh, my brother manages it now. And uh, when I was a kid, I used to work there on Saturdays. Uh, it was like the late 70s. And uh, I guess along with another kid in the yard, we'd pull things out of the, the junk pile. Uh, back then, the, you know, a lot of really good stuff flowed into the scrap. You know, brass door knockers and novelty ashtrays, pewter bowls, toy molds, you know, all sorts of stuff that I guess you'd see on eBay today. But uh, we take it down to... Um, there was a, uh, it was like a, uh, an outdoor movie theater uh, in Revere that we take it down, driving movie theater. And uh, we'd sell this stuff, and uh, sometimes we'd tell stories about this stuff and throw some knocks on, on it and so forth. But I, I feel like that kind of got me into this idea of kind of plucking things out of the scrap. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, when I got to New York... Um, you know, I wasn't working in this industry, but someone hired me to do some uh, research on an old building in Lower Manhattan. Uh, it was like the mid '90s. They owned a bar down there, and they were getting pressure from a developer um, uh, to sort of move out of the the building. But they had a 20-year lease, so it was the bar owner was looking for a way to kind of create some leverage to, I guess, negotiate out of the lease. And uh, he asked me to do the uh, some historical research on the building. Uh, so, okay. I guess long story short, it was at two eleven Pearl Street. Uh, it's, if anyone knows Lower Manhattan, it's a you know it's the oldest area of the city. And uh, this building ended up turning up, you know, being older than it was suspected, and it ended up being owned by the uh, founder of the Colgate Palmolive uh, company. Oh, wow. And uh, so it had these layers of history and it was presented to the Landmarks Commission and they went back and forth with the developer over a while. And there was a little campaign to, you know, recognize the building. It was sort of a surviving uh, warehouse style of the era uh, and there was nothing quite like it. Uh, down there. So they came to a compromise to gut the interior of the building and save the facade. Um, and in doing that, uh, this sort of strange symbol came up on the interior wall of the building that kind of made the, the backstory of it, you know, that much more uh, compelling. Uh, mm-hmm. So things were stopped for a little while. And then it, as they do in New York, <laughs> you know, de- development rolled on. Uh, but yeah. uh, when they as they were gutting the building, um, I went down there, I guess this was about 2000 and they were, you know, they were pounding most of the building into these 30 yard containers, uh, trash containers. And the, you know, the scrap metal was of course being salvaged, but then I saw people, you know, loading these beams onto a trailer by hand. And, um, you know, I sort of did a little bit of a double take cause I'd never realized this lumber was salvaged. And uh, it was that point, you know, I realized they were saving the wood and, you know, I didn't know where it was going, but I was really, you know, curious about, you know, where this material was going, uh, you know, sure. after it had been in this building for 180 years. And um, uh, 
Um, and at that time, there really wasn't, um, you know, I'd never heard the word reclaim wood. I don't even know if it was a term at that point quite yet. Um, it had been used for quite some time, especially up here in New York for heavy construction applications, um, you know, lining sewers and construction lagging right. and concrete forms and so forth. But, you know, this old antique wood was, you know, kind of um, uh, was popular down south and in the Midwest in certain areas. Uh, but up here, it, you know, it was a kind of utility construction grade. So I ended up tracking down the lumber to a yard in Brooklyn and um, visited there and so the, you know, one thing led to the other. <laughs> the uh, I shared the history with the with the owner uh, of the company, and uh, they had uh, reclaimed lumber and new lumber, and they've been around since the 1930s. And uh, he asked me to sort of uh, come do some marketing there. Uh, so that, you know, sort of started my first steps in uh, getting into this material. Sure, it's um, kind of interesting because you came to it from a very historical background, um, which I think is kind of key. I mean, that's one of the, one of the call it marketing things about this, this whole genre of lumber is connecting that story, connecting that history to, you know, to the actual board in front of you. So uh, kind of a, a, a neat intro, uh, a very organic uh, entry into um, this niche of the lumber business. Very cool. Yeah. Um, how about you, Klaus? Let's uh, let's hear your origin story. And uh, and yes, uh, um, uh, Armster Reclaimed Wood, I believe, is uh, uh, the official name uh, of your company up there. So I appreciate you uh, bringing that up, Alan. Um, yeah, that's correct. Yeah. So Armster Reclaimed Lumber. Uh, that's right. And um, I started the business in 2002 uh, or thereabouts, 2002, 2003. Um, but before that I had actually done, uh, I actually went to school for economics and, um, after college I did some economic consulting. And then after that I went and I helped my parents who had a small wood business and I had a lot of confidence. I was like, Oh, I, I'm just going to help them out. They've really struggled. So I'm just going to get their, their, um, business in order. And they, process a lot of white cedar and cypress, predominantly for exterior applications. My father was an architect and he used the wood initially, you know, beginning in the seventies, uh, white cedar in particular, um, after speaking with a forestry professor who had said, you know, um, you're, you, you're, you like to use wood to clad your buildings. Um, you know, instead of buying Western red cedar, you know, there's a local cedar and you should look into it and it's, it's white mm -hmm. cedar. And so he did that. And, um, and, you know, running and working at that business, I just really got into wood and, uh, just milling it, processing it, understanding, um, understanding it and whatnot. And, um, and I was interested in how, you know, different woods become sort of mainstream and, and what people look for. And I actually founded a company initially called Wood Planet, and it was like to buy and sell lumber online. It was sort of during the dot-com boom. It actually still exists. My wife runs it. But in that process, I did a tremendous amount of research. I read, you know, some books um, like Buying and Selling Hardwood Lumber, Buying and Selling Softwood Lumber um, by Dave Leckie. And I went, I joined the NHLA. I went to the NHLA conventions. Um, I spoke to a lot of um, 
companies, a lot of uh, presidents and, and um, you know, uh, personnel within a lot of major hardware lumber companies at that point. And, um, <clears throat> and I learned sort of a lot of the differences between how hardwood lumber and softwood lumber is bought and sold in the marketplace. And somewhere along the line, I, uh, that, that company didn't really take off. Um, but I had sort of remembered working with my parents' company and somewhere along the line, I had an opportunity to source, uh, some reclaimed tank redwood. And, um, mm. and I, got some of this material and I was like, wow, this is amazing. And I talked to some, and I didn't know that much about wood at that point. Um, other than more what I'd read, I hadn't, I mean, I did a lot of milling at my parents, um, facility, but, um, getting in and seeing that material and how special it was, I actually came into it, uh, you know, from the standpoint of, wow, this is wood that you just can't get anymore. And, yeah. you know, I found out about chestnut and it being extinct and, um, or more or less extinct and, and, uh, at least from a commercial lumber standpoint, certainly extinct and uh, heart pine and how it's different from some modern day, you know, Southern yellow pine. And even though it is the sort of original Southern yellow pine and I sort of got into it thinking, wow, these really special woods are actually still available. <clears throat> and the, the um, there's a few ironies there, but one of which is as we got into more and more into reclaimed lumber, it's, it's become sort of apparent, you know, over all these years that it's like getting that really super special wood can be really useful and can be important. But a lot of times people are after, you know, the wood with the holes and the bugs and, and just sort of really gnarly looking stuff. But um, uh, we can kind of get into that. But after getting into that, I got into a couple projects. Lead building was kind of becoming big right about that time and people were looking for reclaimed or, or sustainable sources of wood um, to, to chase their points for, the, for their projects to get you know platinum certified or, or gold certified or whatever. So mm -hmm. we started supplying some of those projects. And I think for me a, along the way, um, I had sort of worked in my parents' business and sort of the broader lumber industry was, it was really, it's sort of somewhat easy to sort of understand. I mean, I will say from the standpoint of having a wood company, um, in general, wood companies are not the most profitable businesses. Like you look at some companies no. and they are building, um, you know, tremendous factories and building buildings according to their um, specifications. And uh, meanwhile, you, you see most wood companies and they're like hermit crabs or like trying to find some old discarded shell for them to set up their business in. And it's like, oh yeah, I can, I can make my business work in this tiny little hovel and, and, uh, you know, we can get some power in here and, and produce something. So it doesn't, it's not the most profitable, uh, uh, industry around. I think I remember looking when I was, you know, setting up Wood Planet initially, I looked at all the NAICS codes and, uh, you know, for all the different industries and there's like 160 sort of primary categories. And like at the very bottom of the list in the last 10, like in the first, in the top 10, there might've been like, you know, oil companies and pharmaceuticals and things like that. And maybe tech companies, whatever. But in the bottom 10, it was like logging companies, millwork manufacturers. It's like, oh, these are the 10 least profitable <laughs> industries you can get into. You know, why don't I jump right in? So, but, um, so we're sure. like all these hermit crabs and, and whatnot, but, uh, but I got into it and I was really fascinated with the wood. 
But I think um, as I was sort of setting up the business, one of the first orders I did, I had this, um, I had to source all this chestnut and I was used to buying, you know, and, and operating within this sort of like mainstream of, uh, you know, if you need to make a thousand square feet of, of flooring, well, you buy, you know, 1200 board feet of material or 1400 board feet. And you can sort of, you know, estimate your waste based on, you know, certain things. But when you get into reclaimed lumber, I bought like 2000 feet of chestnut and I thought, okay, well, I'm going to make a thousand, I'm going to make 1500 square feet. And I process all the material and I made like 200 square feet of flooring out <laughs> of it. And say. <laughs> it was like, you know, wood, it was all rotted and there was some wood in there. It wasn't the right species. It wasn't actually chestnut. They had wanted a specific width. And, you know, I sort of based on the, the size of the beams, I thought I could do it. And it turned out to be a, a, a mess. And, after that, I'm like, all right, well, I'll just go buy more material. I guess I learned my lesson. I need to buy some material. And I went out and I literally bought wood from like five different suppliers. And um, every one of them was a dirt bag. You know, everyone, like one of them, it was like the wood was just so riddled with nails. It couldn't possibly be processed. Another one, it wasn't even the right species. Another guy sent him money. I never got any wood. You know, he's just, he just never, he just disappeared. And I was like, man, I was used to buying wood. And it's like, when you buy like wood from a commercial mill, it's like, if you have a problem with that wood, like maybe they didn't dry it properly and maybe it wasn't totally dry or maybe, um, maybe you have some other kind of issue with it. It's like, you call them up and it's like, you know, I had an issue with 5% of your material or your tally was off by 3% or 5% or something. And it's like, uh, you know, the wood, you know, in your select grade, I don't agree with the grading. There was, you know, 15% of the boards don't meet the grade or whatever. You can sort of go over that. And it's like the claim is going to be like on a $30,000 load, you might have like a claim of like $1,000 or $2,000 that you can argue with them. Meanwhile, you get into reclaimed lumber and it's like, yeah, I just bought a truckload of chestnut and there's not a single piece of chestnut on the truck. <laughs> and <laughs> so you have, so I ran into these problems and I almost just got out of the business right then because I will say, you know, one of the differences between, um, you know, reclaimed lumber and new lumber uh, is sort of the, the players. So the people who are involved, they're much more sort of opportunistic. They're not typically <laughs> the word I was going to use. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're not typically um, unscrupulous. You know, I mean, they're, they're not looking to necessarily have a business relationship where they can sell wood to multiple times and in the future, it's like, you know what, we got this barn, we took it down, let's get as much out of this thing as we possibly can. They're not necessarily knowledgeable. Somebody said it was all chestnut, so I'm selling it as chestnut since that's the most valuable wood there is, you know, whatever. So, so, so uh, anyway, there's, there was a lot of like challenges associated with that. And it was like, for me, having come from the relative uh, calm of, of sort of, you know, softwood, you know, white cedar lumber in Cyprus and dealing with regular mills and people who just seem like you could do business with them. Uh, it was, it was eye opening and mm. it almost sort of pushed me away from it completely, but I managed to sort of stick with it and, um, and sort of grow the business. And along the way became sort of opportunistic myself, not necessarily in a dishonest way, but one of the things that I noticed was you have a lot of reclaimed lumber out there a lot of really fantastic material 
you certainly have opportunistic people. But two things that I did sort of right off the bat was um, with respect to buying that material that I needed to complete the order, I, I switched the way that I do business so that I tried not to buy what I need. Instead, I tried to buy value. And so and that's pretty much what I've done ever since then. So, you know, people contact me with what they have. Um, I don't really tend to look specifically for material anymore, but people come to me and they know that if I'm going to buy the material, I'm going to want a good value. You know, I'm going to want to get it at a good price. So I'm not really out there trying to because when you're out there buying for a specific project, um, especially in reclaimed lumber, first of all, you might not be able to find it because the wood just comes up, you know, sporadically. Secondly, if you can find it, um, you know, it might not be exactly what you sampled. And lastly, um, you know, people are going to know you need it. And so they're going to charge accordingly and, and be opportunistic. So I'm buying value every month, every week, every year. And, um, and someone has something, I listen to what they want for it. And, you know, maybe I'll throw out an offer what I think it's worth and they can take it or leave it. And if they leave it, I move on to the next one. But the other thing that we sort of, um, you know, did as we sort of were, were, were sort of establishing the business is I looked at all the other companies and we had done a lot of business at that point already with Rex Lumber Company. And I looked at how these companies sort of operated um, and really impressed with the, the organization, the operation, you know, all sorts of, uh, components of it. And I looked at sort of what, what they, you know, I asked them, uh, some of these companies, you know, around here, a lot of the wholesalers, you know, all of them, they're, you know, Kiever Willard and Holton Bugby and, and Rex Lumber and Downs and Reader sure. at the time <clears throat> and, uh, all the McIlvain's and whatnot. So, you know, you have these companies and so you kind of, were trying to, I was trying to sort of understand what they thought of reclaim lumber and, and sort of what I could do. And the two things that came out of it was I realized that it was a niche that they weren't super enthusiastic about, and they weren't about to sort of jump in and start, you know, competing with me because they hated every aspect of it. They hated, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm so glad you said that. <laughs> I mean, they hated the bugs. They hated the nails. They hated the people who were selling them the wood. They hated, I, I, they probably hated the people who were buying the wood too. I don't, I don't really know, but just every aspect of it was just com complete anathema to them. And, um, and so it's almost far, insulting and, if I, if I can speak for those people, cause I work for them, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, yeah. it, it's almost insulting the, the level of detail and the amount of time spent in buying quality wood, sourcing yeah. quality wood, establishing sustainable relationships to provide consistent supply chain that is also environmentally sustainable and legal and all that stuff, grading, milling, drying, all of the quality control Mm -hmm. you, I mean, you as the reclaim industry, you basically just thumb your nose. At that. Well, so. yeah, I mean, you know, I was listening to your podcast a few weeks ago, a couple of things. And I was like, man, I'm going to say some things here that, you know, won't, will sound foreign to this guy. Cause you, you know, you were talking <laughs> about like, like, oh, we had wood with bugs in it. We had to quarantine it off into the side of our mill and, you know, we had to, you know, heat treat it and stuff like that. I mean, I regularly am bringing in loads and loads of wood and it's like, oh, look at all the, you know, this wood's got tons of bugs in it. And it's like, well, it's right, actually we'll just, moving. Yeah. Just throw it in right next to that reclaimed, you know, perfect teak that we got. Who cares? You know, it's, it doesn't really matter, you know. So, 
um, it's it's it is interesting. Yeah, the wood is moving. Yeah, it's 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 uh, it's splitting itself self up into uh, in components. It's being digested and you know whatnot right in front of us. But um, so I I sort of saw these companies. I was like, well, you know what? The demand doesn't appear to be going away. There's still architects, designers, people who want this wood, and for good reason. I can kind of get into that, but. Um, here you have all of these companies who just hate it and, and right down to the mill workers themselves who are like, I don't want to bring that, you know, I mean, they use nasty terms, but that I don't want to bring that garbage into my facility with the nails in it and the bugs and everything else. And it's just, it's just, it is, it's insulting to them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they, they were taking every opportunity they could when people were saying, Oh, we want reclaimed wood for this, this, um, you know, uh, millwork project we're doing, <clears throat> they were doing everything they could to try and, you know, make new wood look old and, and try to <laughs> fake it and, you know, whip it with chains and, and put nails in it, use little, um, uh, awls in it, whatever they could to kind of make it look like it had bug damage and reclaimed and use the original face and stuff. But the reality of reclaimed lumber is, you know, why people like it is they like the authenticity. They like the history. They like the stories, but, you know, when you're buying new wood and I don't want to, you know, denigrate sort of buying new wood, but a lot of it from a, from a designer standpoint, when they're considering what they should buy, a lot of times it really comes down to what color is the wood, you know? And it's like, because there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of, um, textural considerations. You know, most wood is planed. I mean, there are some occasional textural considerations, but you know, historically, you know, 99% of all millwork applications, the wood is planed. There's not a lot when it comes to, you know, the grain is, is maybe somewhat important or they might think it is. <clears throat> but why do you think there's this like interest in like um, all this white oak being marketed, you know, as you had in another podcast of yours, as like sea mist gray or, or some sort of like forest green or right. whatever. Yeah, it's all color swatches. It's all color swatches. So um, new wood and, and historically, the only new wood you could buy was, you know, FAS lumber. So you're buying the best grade. So you're not having some of the natural characteristics in the wood you're buying. Um, and again, this is historically, it's not exactly the case now, but still largely. So you're, you're buying the best grade, you're buying, um, you know, you're, you're buying planed, milled, cleaned up wood. And so it really comes down to um, maybe grain to a lesser extent, but mostly color. But when you get into reclaimed lumber, you have the history, you have all of these textural considerations, you know, is it rough sawn? Was it walked on by cows all, all these years? You have, um, <clears throat> you know, the stains in it, you know, was it used as a, a wine tank or a pickle tank? Um, other textural considerations, you have the, the, the staining from the, the nail holes, all of these sorts of things that sort of come into play, which make it visually interesting and sometimes texturally interesting for the designers. So they see a lot there that they want to, um, tap into when they're, when they're putting together their, you know, restaurant, you know, wall paneling or something like that. And so sometimes they're after that history. Oh, this came from the Coney Island boardwalk. That's so cool. I, you know, I used to go there when I was a kid. I loved the idea of putting that on there or telling that story. Sometimes it's, you know, or age, it's, you know, wow, this is wood from the, you know, sawn, pit sawn in the 1700s or something. So you have a lot of these sort of textural considerations. You have the historical ones, you have the um, staining, you know, this wood, why is this wood so brown? Well, you know, the 
it was at a horse farm and the horses pissed on it for 50 years and you know all of their you know compounds in the urine you know made it you know fumed it basically oh i didn't know that's how fuming is well yeah that's kind of what fuming is basically yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, stickly owned horses so yeah <laughs> yeah exactly so um but yeah so so i got into it but my what we did and the sort of the spin that we sort of took on it was you know what i'm gonna try and emulate um you know rex lumber and some of these other you know com- lumber companies and try and offer the wood. So it doesn't matter what it looks like when it comes in, but when it goes out, I'm gonna try and sell it to these companies in a way that they feel comfortable with. So it's gonna be properly kiln dried, it's gonna be remilled, remanufactured. So when they get it, um, because again, you know, when, when the guys who I buy from, and if I ask them if it's dry, you know, you ask a lumber mill if their wood is dry and they will say, yes, you know, we put it in the kiln and we checked it. It was, you know, six to eight percent. And, you know, of course it's dry. You don't even need to ask them. Is it dry? Yes or no. That's it. But with with reclaim guys, you say, is it dry? And they go, yep, absolutely. And what they, mean by that, what they mean by that is, yeah, when we got it, we left it out in the rain for a couple months, but then we put it underneath the shed. So now it's been under the shed for a few months. It should be pretty dry now. Not even sticker. That doesn't you know? look well. So, yeah. And um, <clears throat> and it's like, well, does it have bugs in it? Well, I didn't see any bugs. So, no, I'm going to say no. And how about metal? Did you is it is it metal free? Yeah, we took we took all the nails we could see out of it. So, oh, OK, great. And uh, it just so happens that the ones you can't see are much harder to get out. But, um, you know, so there was this sort of um, concern. So I knew that presented an opportunity if we can pull the metal out of the material dry it properly machine it plane it if necessary then we could um get the material uh to and and into the mainstream and these companies would be willing to buy it and that's that's one of the things that we've done so we do we do sell a lot of wood even now to to kiever and rex and and mm-hmm. certainly a lot of our businesses to to companies that um are big mill workshops and they know that if if they're buying from us they they don't have to worry about those other other issues because it has become sort of more or less mainstream sure well i and i think i think you're filling a, a very needed niche and i'm glad you said it before the the competition isn't really there because i will i will speak for when i say we i will speak for the mainstream lumber industry we don't want to mess with it um <laughs> and mm-hmm. it's you know we 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 joked about that kind of insulting side of things, but it's, it's too, I think too difficult to run in parallel to, to deal with new wood and reclaimed wood. You almost have to have two separate operations. You need to have a separate staff um, to, right. to do it. It's, it's so entirely different from a buying perspective, from a, just a, a curation of the collection. Like you said before, like, you know, you buy on value, um, and and because you can't really anticipate what what you know that job, how much yield's going to come out of that job. So you're you're buying and you're stockpiling, um, you're you're maintaining an inventory, as are we. But it's a totally different situation where you know the the input is it's much closer to the output, at least from a rough lumber perspective. The mill side of things, totally different. You know, and and the guys that I've that I've uh, seen that that do it well. You know, they, they understand the eccentricities of this wood, but more importantly, they understand that this board is entirely different from the board next to it. 
that's something that a lot of millwork houses cannot wrap their head around. Um, and mm-hmm. it's what you said earlier. It's all that <coughs> relatively plain grain stuff that makes good molding, you know, linear millwork right. at least. Not bad. <laughs> you know, that six head <laughs> molder will eat that board and spit right. it out in the little dust with that big old knot in the middle. So the the traditional mill worker is used to like, I mean, I've had to have some conversations about grain direction with guys mm-hmm. in the mill and they kind of look at me like, well, yeah, but it doesn't matter. Like it comes out the same both ways. And yes, kind of sort of, I mean, the good wood, you could run it through either direction and the molders, especially with the cutter heads and things that they have now and set up properly, it almost doesn't make a difference. Um, mm-hmm. But when they do run it through in the right direction and you run your hand over it, they're like, oh, okay, now I feel the difference. But this is, there's, there's so many things like, like um, myself, you know, I take off the, the lumber yard hat and put on the woodworker hat, the, the level of detail and all the stuff that I agonize over in building a piece of furniture, none of that exists in the commercial space. That's not mm-hmm. profitable. Um, and as right. you said, the, the margins are so ridiculously tight in the lumber industry and not just lumber. I mean, lumber is a raw material. So talk to any raw material industry and the margins are ridiculously tight because we are the guys that get the pushback. Like mm-hmm. when you want to cut costs, you know, when you're an architect or a contractor building a project, and you want to cut costs. First thing you do is you go to your raw material supplier, <laughs> drive down the right. cost of that steel, the cost of the concrete, the cost of the wood, et cetera. So, you know, um, it's it's a it's a tough business. And the more the more unusual, the more unique that running that job is, the less we're interested in it. Mm-hmm. So what you're doing is for lack of a better term, standardizing all that crazy stuff that happens from one board to the next, you guys are qualified and able to deal with that. And the product you're producing is a little bit more standardized, a little bit user friendly or um, to, to those of us that, that can't deal with that. And I think that is a much, much, much needed position in the industry. Um, it, it has to be there or the whole reclaim thing is just going to die. Because right. your experience with the people you buy from, that's what most people understand. Like in the lumber industry, architects, contractors, builders, all these guys that are using the material, when you say reclaimed and they all roll their eyes because they've all mm-hmm. dabbled in it because it's hot, mm-hmm. right? You know, it's been right. super hot. Well, I'm going to all dig into this and oh my gosh, that stuff's expensive. So let's go to the guy who has the barn. It's much, much cheaper over there. Well, there's a reason, <laughs> you know, right. you get what you pay for. So yeah. in order for this aesthetic, just call it, you know, design form, whatever, um, to continue, your business has to exist personally. Um, right. You know, and, and that's speaking from, you know, the marketing director of a, of a large national lumber company. Um, we don't want to deal with it, but we certainly have customers who want it. Um, so we, we need you, (laughs) we need you there to help us out. And, and so uh, let me just say, thank you (laughs) from the lumber industry (laughs) perspective. It's, it's it's very cool. And, and frankly, from a woodworker's perspective, because reclaim lumber, um, and we'll we'll start to get into kind of some of its sources, because I want to kind of define what we mean by all this, because reclaim lumber has become so hot that now it's not reclaimed lumber anymore. And you Mm -hmm. you started to hint at this with the scratch all marks and the chains and the texturizing machines. And I mean, you can buy reclaimed lumber at Home Depot and Lowe's for God's sake. Um, And it's it's laminated together um, panels that Mm -hmm. have a gray 
stain on them, you know, or some sort of oxidizing finish. I mean, the the industry that exists around oxidizing finishes in order to Mm -hmm. get a prematurely weathered board, the fact that that industry exists ought to tell you something right right there. So yeah, the challenge is you're exactly right. Yeah, it's, it's, it's nuts. So certainly the aesthetic is in demand. Um, the uniqueness is there, which I love. I mean, I mean, as a woodworker, I get into the grain. I, I love that side of things. And it always shocks me when I talk to architects and designers. You know, um, you, you'd said earlier, you know, it's about color. Worse than that, it's about color in a tiny little sample swatch that mm-hmm. they were given by a lumber yard that's in their design library. You know, go into any architecture firm and there's some sort of design <clears throat> library and they have a sample board on the wall or maybe they have a little, you know, bead chain of wood samples, you know, and that wood sample is is a three inch long by two inch <clears throat> long square. That's a quarter inch thick. And of course, right. it is clear <laughs> as can be. Of course. It is yep. quarter sawn as can be, you know, it's gorgeous because right. that's the sample wood. So mm-hmm. they go and they design we're going to have a feature wall in this house or in this corporate campus. And, mm-hmm. oh, well, this is, you know, this quarter sawn white oak is beautiful. Let's use that. And you ship them a bunch and they're like, well, that board's browner than that one. Or that one has streaks right. in it. Or that one has a, you know, a, a gum pocket or something. Cherry is the one that comes to mind. And mm-hmm. they re- they reject it. And it's like, right. but it's all FAS. Like, that's perfectly yeah. clear lumber. The, the understanding of the organic nature of wood has disappeared in many ways. And Mm -hmm. and we have plastics, we have printers that can print flooring that looks like wood. And it's pretty damn good, actually. I mean, you can see where the patterns repeat, but I think only I see that. (laughs) Only people like me (laughs) really see that. No one else sees it. They see a walnut floor. I see a printed walnut floor, you know, but that has become very common. So what I think is interesting about the reclaimed, we'll just call it industry, is it is the polar opposite and the other direction. Um, and if nothing else, you know, jamming mushroom wood in somebody's face and them going, oh, that's kind of cool, might be enough to normalize the fact that even FAS lumber is unique from one board to the other. Um, right. <laughs> and let's talk sustainability here. Maybe it doesn't have to be FAS. Maybe we can let more number one common go through the system. You know, maybe right. we can use more of the wood out there. Um, mm-hmm. And that, that's the other reason. Economically, the margins are so tight, it doesn't make any sense to sell number one common, let alone number two common. You can't right. make any money on that. So everything has to be <clears> FAS. <throat> and for that matter, you know, apologies to NHLA, but FAS means nothing. FAS is not good enough. Frankly, eighty-three percent clear with a you know a a six by eight cutting. Sorry, that's not going to cut it. And and that's why you see you know lumber companies. You know they they still. I mean, you pick up the H hardwood market report and you see they're still listing the 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 NHLA grades to sell their material. They're still listing as FAS, but they add additional qualifying components so and and they're also add and they're also adding their own grades so where you say you know number one is good enough or maybe even number two or whatever well they're often now listing rustic grades and when you buy a rustic grade from them i'm surprised at sometimes how much they charge for it because i'm like wow this is this their coals from their number two this is just some some stuff they're sorting out from their number two or whatever but 
the reality is, yeah, they have done that value add. They have sorted it. It's supposedly, you know, sound knots and, and, you know, not splits all the way to the end of the board. So it's not based on clear cuttings. It's based instead on, on sort of how, you know, sound the board is, how usable yeah. it is with, with those characteristics that are in there. But, but therein think, lies the flaw. The NHL grade <clears throat> is a cutting grade. It's not right. an appearance grade. It's not like FEQ um, or a lot of right. the European exotic grades that are actually appearance grades. Um, right. And a lot of people don't understand that. You know, well, this right. is but the they, top grade. Right. And they, they make some effort. You know, some of the companies will put in, you know, the sapwood um, minimums. They'll put in, you know, or they'll put in 100% heartwood for the walnut or they'll right. put in yeah. their 90, sort of 10, 80, veneer 20, quality. Yeah, all that stuff. Yeah. Or they'll put in, you know, veneer quality or something like that. And so they upsell it. They do some things to sort of add value. But I would say, I mean, the thing for us um, that I would say is, is sort of, I mean, to sort of, you know, jump away from that discussion a little bit, but um, sort of stay with it. We have what we try to do or what we've had to do, um, as I was sort of mentioning, is as we sell to mainstream mainstream companies, you know, the big, big mill workhouses that are doing big commercial projects or, you know, some of these lumber wholesalers or, or whomever, we have had to become sort of vertically integrated. So you take I mean, you take some lumber companies um, like uh, you were mentioning Rosenzweig earlier, I think, before mm-hmm. uh, the podcast. And, you know, these companies, they can't even process material. I mean, they, they do one, they buy from one or two or maybe three different suppliers and they, you know, sell all over, but they, they do no manufacturing. It's like, they have a very distinct sort of place in the marketplace. And that is, you know, when you want, you know, quality material and you're in this location, which is, which happens to be New York city. Well, there's not a lot of places to get it. So there you go, you go there and you, you get what you need, you know, whereas with us, we are, um, we're like the logger, the transportation company, the mill workshop, you know, we're, we're, um, you know, the sorting, the, the dry kiln, we're every, we're, we're the retail facility. We're even the installer in some instances, we make countertops and we will actually install them. So we are one of the most vertically integrated companies. Uh, you see that to a lesser extent on the softwood side with a company like Weyerhaeuser, but on the hardwood side, you have all these links in the chain and you know your your company for instance that you work for and and a lot of these companies you talk to you know the designers and and sort of the end users and they'll have no idea they don't know who the sawmills are they don't even know who the lumber distributors are they don't really know the only company they know is the the flooring company who sold them the floor or, or you know yeah. that you know the very end of the chain whereas with reclaimed lumber we can be the company that's going down and, and not usually tearing down a barn, but certainly going in and picking it up off the ground and, <clears throat> and then um, bringing it in and having to you know, saw up the beams, having to dry them. And so there is a lot that we've had to sort of undertake. And that's, that's why when you say sort of like it's, it's really um, not – it has to be treated as a separate – entity and it would be hard for a company you know the mainstream lumber companies to sort of take it on because there are so many different um you know points at which it's completely unique i mean you talk to a company it is a different you know like rex or 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 mcelvain or whomever and they don't they would have to buy from different suppliers than they currently buy from they would have to 
um, add all these additional capabilities with respect to the metal, with respect to the, the kiln drying. <clears throat> and so if a company like ours can come in and do some of that or do all of that, really, um, then then we're in good shape. I will say, um, you know, there is there are some issues even with reclaimed lumber selling to these companies, because one of the things that they demand is that they don't want to be competing with their suppliers. So early on, they were like, well, we can't buy from, you know, Armster or Sawkill because if we're buying from these companies, they will be competing with us um, to the end user and, you know, or, you know, to the, to the stair company or whatever. And we've had to take some precautions and we've had to, you know, pay attention to some things, but basically that has become a non-issue, non I suppose, or almost a non-issue simply because we're small enough where, you know, it doesn't seem to come up that often, I suppose. But um, there have been there have been challenges along the way, certainly trying to get our material uh, into the marketplace yeah, um, and it, having it's to sort of common... continually add. I mean, we own a millwork shop now where we have yeah. winding molders and, you know, straight line rip saws and, and modern equipment, um, a giant dust collection system. <clears throat> and we bought that seven years ago because we were it was getting harder and harder for us to have uh, these companies, outside companies, process our material. So we're a sawmill. I mean, we have our own sawmill. We have our own dry kilns. Um, and now we have our own mill workshop. So we've had to add in all this stuff along the way. And we're our own sort of sales force. So I'm going in and to, you know, architects and meeting with them and sort of talking about finishes and everything because we, we kind of, like I said, we have to do a little bit of everything. Yeah. Well, I'd like to think that's a direction that the industry is heading. This is a, this is a decision I know that, that uh, at McIlvain we made about 12 years ago um, to, to vertically integrate um, from a quality control perspective um, and from an education perspective because so many of the end users, as you said, they just they just don't know. They don't know where it comes from. They don't understand kind of the working properties. They don't understand what's available to them from a design perspective, or they've been told something's available, but yet they can't seem to find it. Um, and in order to prevent us from putting out so many fires downstream, we just started getting involved earlier. And then we just started doing, you know, say you might as well just do it yourself type thing. Um, and it, it's becoming more common. Um, I think I think the internet, the democratization of just the marketplace um, has eliminated a lot of those concerns you talked about earlier where, well, we can't do business with them because then we'll be competing with our customers. It's there to some extent, but the, the fact is that that's pretty common now. Um, everybody, well, and the breakdown of the wholesale idea, um, this idea that you can sell a whole truckload and have it make one stop just does, doesn't really exist anymore. Um, so that truck is now making 27 stops um, and the margins were already tight to begin with. So what has happened is people have started selling to different aspects and, and adding value where they can. Um, and I, I don't think wholesale actually really exists anymore uh, in the lumber industry. Where it does exist, I don't imagine it will for much longer anyway. Um, Alan, let's, yes. let's give Klaus voice a rest here. Um, um, I'm curious, uh, since, since we've, uh, uh, you've got that kind of historical background in New York City, let's talk a little bit about 
where some of this material has come from. We've already thrown out several terms. You know, we've thrown out the idea of tank wood. Um, I brought up mushroom wood at one point. Um, where where is this stuff coming from, and can we can we categorize reclaimed lumber? Can we kind of put it in different buckets um, as, as products? Yeah. Um, well, in the in the book we did, uh, Klaus, um, which most of it um, sort of reflects a lot of Klaus's inventory. Uh, we identified maybe five broad categories okay. uh, of reclaimed wood. Um, starting with old houses and apartment houses, um, mm-hmm. barns, of course, which you know usually comes most readily to mind when people think yeah. about reclaimed wood. Um, industrial buildings, uh, which may be the largest volume uh, source of reclaimed wood, is you know some of these industrial buildings can you know easily generate factories, mills, uh, warehouses. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, larger build. beams, flooring, a lot of stuff like that, right? Yeah, yeah, larger timbers, um, decking, you know, all joists, uh, a lot of hard pine comes out of warehouses yeah. from the late 1800s. Unfortunately, dear listener, at this point in our recording, we had some kind of weird hiccup in the recording software that neither Alan, Klaus, nor myself noticed. So we continued to have a merry little conversation about the different types of reclaimed wood and none of it got recorded. Um, we remembered it. I realized it later and picked up the recording, and I'll conclude this episode with that. But uh, rather than trying to re-record this, I have a copy of Alan and Klaus's book called Reclaimed Wood. And basically, we went through uh, the couple of chapters on the types of reclaimed wood. So I will do my best to try to recount that here, um, maybe without the same eloquence as, uh, as Alan, uh, as he waxed philosophical and historical on us a little bit. But essentially, as he was saying before he got cut off, um, old houses and apartment buildings was a major source. And really what we're talking about here is framing material, studs, to buy. Um, but it was also um, a, the, the species, like the finer species, maybe that we use for paneling or frame and panel libraries and things like that, would oftentimes get grabbed up um you know, because they knew uh, this is walnut or this is mahogany or something like that. And they didn't really make it into circulation or moreover, those houses, those are still standing. They're not torn down because those were the aristocracy. It was the everyman's house that got torn down and that is the framing material. So for the most part, it was relatively unassuming, but what makes it interesting to us now is that is usually old growth material. So you look at, you know, a stud from the 1800s or the 1900s and super, super tight growth rings as compared to the studs that are specifically grown to be studs now. So they were still a lot of softwoods and things like that, um, but they were old growth or maybe in some instances second growth. The one particular thing of note with old houses is chestnut. Chestnut was used, again, that was that was an everyman's lumber. It wasn't really a, a specialized lumber. It is now because the chestnut is all but extinct. So chestnut and wormy chestnut are some of the things that we come, we come across the most often when it comes to reclaimed houses, or excuse me, old houses and apartment buildings. The next category is kind of the ubiquitous barn wood. It's really what almost the reclaimed wood movement was built around because barns were everywhere. And what's interesting is barns were, you know, they were built by the farmer 
right there on site. Often the trees cleared to make room for the barn were used to build the barn. Certainly there wasn't a lot of wholesale distribution going on to build that barn. So the trees were felled on the property and then repurposed into the barn. So oftentimes you'll find a mixture of species, um, everything from oak, prior, probably primarily, certainly chestnut at the time, when the, depending when the barn was built, but beech, hickory, elm, maple, birch, um, and occasionally you'll find some oddball on there because it just happened to be one of the trees the farmer cleared to make that barn. Kind of the distinguishing factor here, though, is these were not, you know, finished products. They would have hewn marks or circular saw marks on the side, and that's really what makes barnwood barnwood now is all those mill marks. You know, the old houses and apartment buildings, that was surface material because it was meant either um, as uh, as sheathing inside or they were rough sawn um, studs, framing material. The barn really... Like the more texture, the more mill marks there are on it, like the more valuable it is as a reclaimed material. The interesting thing about barnwood, because it has become so popular and it's kind of the icon of the reclaimed industry, is it is waning quickly. The barns, you know, that are rather than being sitting abandoned like they were for decades, now people are taking them down immediately because they know they've got gold in them, their barns. And the reclaimed barnwood thing is actually becoming much more of a scarcity. So it's a true irony. And we think of reclaimed lumber as salvaging lumber from the past and, and, and repurposing uh, material. And now what we're repurposing is actually starting to become rare because it has become so incredibly popular. The third category is from industrial buildings. And interestingly enough, um, we tend to think of barns as a, as a great resource for larger timbers, but it ends up not being the case because more, and really they're coming from these industrial buildings. The barns used to get grabbed for siting and a lot of times the timbers inside the barn themselves uh, have either degraded too far or they're too difficult to get out of there. There's just too much going on because the barn obviously is an open air structure. So those larger timbers had oftentimes a lot more rot inside of them. Industrial buildings on the other hand, well, they weren't meant to be open air buildings. They had they were factories filled with workers and things like that. In many instances, they were built post-Civil War era during the Industrial Revolution boom that happened after the Civil War. These were big buildings, big timbers. So basically, it was restricted to softwoods, the softwoods that grew big enough and tall enough and straight enough. So in the eastern United States, we were talking eastern white pine. In the south, you're talking southern yellow pine, loblolly pine, heart pine. And as you move further west, you're talking about Douglas fir. Enormous timbers, 8x8s, 12x8s, 12x12s, 40, 50 foot long things. And then, of course, you had quite a bit of flooring, you know, and flooring that would stand up to a lot of abuse. So you would find maple flooring quite a bit throughout. Um, this is everything from TNG flooring to just square edged plank flooring, all the way down to that heart pine flooring, oftentimes in what today we would call two by thickness, you know, thicker than your traditional three quarter inch hardwood flooring. But these industrial buildings is really where the good quality, larger, heavy timbers come from. And that's what kind of makes it its own separate, unique uh, subcategory of reclaimed material. And the next category is the one that I felt particularly interesting. And I think from a, a you know small furniture maker, woodworker perspective, this is the gold mine. And these are the tank woods, the wooden tanks that you see on the top of large buildings in New York City or the Bronx or any major city, and also in large industrial applications. Wooden tanks 
were pretty low volume size tanks. Certainly there were some larger water tanks and things like that, but they're found in um, for, for housing specific liquids like wine or vinegar, vermouth, pickles, whiskey, beer, uh, even Worcestershire sauce. Um, there's, they're really kind of everywhere too. And what makes them distinct is they are made out of species that um, resist water and rot. So your, your western red cedars, cypress, redwood, uh, all the cedars really, and uh, white oak. Um, you know, of course, we know that today from the distilleries, the white oak is absolute gold. And certainly Douglas fir will come in there as well when it's not being used for large timbers. But what's interesting is these were, you know, relatively thick planks that had bevel edges put together much like a cooper would build a, a bucket today. But they also take on the character of whatever was stored in them. So if it was a pickle tank, they smelled like pickles and they would be stained and dyed based upon what was inside of them, you know, the, and, and in many instances imbued with that. So, so the, all the moisture was taken out of this board and was completely replaced with vinegar over decades of storing vinegar and likewise in the pickle tanks and the Worcestershire tanks. So you get unique staining, unique colors. You also get wearing on the boards that almost, it gives you that texture, almost like shishugi bond texture where you burn the wood and then, um, wire brush off the the softer wood the the acids and things like the vinegar have eaten away that softer wood giving you that 3d kind of topographical effect of the wood but more importantly is the woods that were being used here they wanted them to be completely free of knots because obviously a knot would be a spot where things would leak so they would often use straight grain rift quartered type materials in really beautiful tone woods. When you think of some of these softwoods, the Douglas firs, the pines, the cedars, spruce, Alaskan yellow, um, would make outstanding tone woods today. And there's a whole kind of subculture of the reclaim movement where the luthiers are seeking this type of stuff too. Really interesting. And if you go to uh, Klaus's website, he's got some really cool pictures of some of the tank woods. Actually, for that matter, just, just buy their book, guys. Reclaim Wood is, is an outstanding resource. I'm looking through some of the pictures in here right now of the various stainings and textures happening to things like cypress. Um, for these tank woods. Very, very cool stuff. I know I'm going to be uh, keeping an eye out for tank woods for, <laughs> from here on out because it's cool stuff. And then really the last uh, category is kind of the catch-all, the uncommon stuff that shows up uh, in any of the thousands of applications that wood was used for during the growth of, of, of this country and really around the world in the uh, Industrial Revolution. So some examples here are Boardwalks, docks, dunnage or, or cargo woods used in the holds of ships. Cherry is very common here. Um, uh, uh, bowling alleys, gym floors, uh, another very common one, and all kinds of industrial processes like crane mats, steel mill uh, rolling platforms, things like that. All of this stuff kind of filters in. And what's interesting about this last category is you'll also find a lot of recently reclaimed. You know, not all reclaimed lumber has to be hundreds of years old. Some of the stuff is from the 1950s. And when we look at steel mills, so many steel mills have closed down in the recent decades. And, and a lot of the reclaimed material coming out of that was recently sourced actually by, by the company I work for. I've actually had several uh, pieces of wood come back and land on my desk that we sold in like 1912. 
and and someone was reclaiming it and they traced the sources back and they traced it back to the Jacobs and McIlvain company and they called us up and said, hey, you guys are still in business. How cool. Do you still have this material? <laughs> like we're reclaiming this this uh, hard maple or this Douglas fir. This stuff was originally supplied by you guys, you know, 110 years ago or something like that. It's really kind of interesting. We are now seeing that circle of life come back around again. So as I mentioned before, some of the reclaimed things like barnwood are, are starting to um, become more and more scarce, we can still continue to reclaim material that's being used in buildings today. It pairs the thought of some of the quality of the stuff being used in framing material today, but there certainly is material out there that could be exotic. I know a lot of my customers using exotic material for ceilings and things like that. Well, in 60, 70 years or so, somebody may be reclaiming an Iroko ceiling or um, you know, a, a walnut paneled room or something like that. So this, this circle of life of reclaimed material continues on and on, but ultimately those are, what did I cover? Like five, six different categories that you can find this material in, in different colors, different textures, different thicknesses, different widths, lengths, but oftentimes looking at those dimensions, you can get an idea of what that originally was used for and start to tell the story of that particular species of wood, that particular board, etc. And at this point, I will drop us back into our original recording because by now I figured out that I was a bonehead and wasn't recording anything. Having some understanding of, of what it is as a reclaim seller, reseller, retailer, mill workhouse, um, what are the things that you do to make the wood, for lack of a better term, acceptable? And I kept kind of going back on that because the answer is it depends. And this goes back to your idea of kind of wanting to emulate, wanting to take this reclaimed business and emulate what some of the other big companies were doing. And so many of the lumber entities that exist today are, are you, you kind of said it earlier, they're kind of just taking the order. You know, here's what I need. You need a thousand feet. Great, thousand feet. Put it on the truck, ship it. Um, and there needs to be more conversation on what are you making? what's the application or, you know, and, and, and as you said earlier, you don't want to be insulting, but you kind of like, are you sure you need that? Um, are you sure that's the right species for you? And I think there needs to be greater conversation. And this is up and down the chain, um, at, at the, at the architect and design interior design level to the builder level, to the actual trim carpenter, to you know the person doing the takeoff, to the intern making the call, you know, to the purchasing department, there needs to be more conversation to better utilize the resource, whether that's new wood or whether that's reclaimed wood. In, in order to keep reclaimed in the zeitgeist and have people wanting to use it and not rolling their eyes, there needs to be a better understanding of this is not regular lumber. This is not just go pull it off the shelf. Um, this is not just put it on a truck and, and ship it out. This is lumber with an asterisk. You know, this is lumber that, how do you want to use it? We will make sure that it is, you know, prepared for lack of a better term in accordance with what kind of stresses you're going to put it on. What do you want it to look like? How are you going to use it? How are you going to install it? All that stuff. Um, and because of that, um, all the way back to the beginning of our conversation where, you know, Klaus, you bought, I can't remember the numbers, but we'll say a thousand board feet thinking I'll get, you know, 500 out of it and you ended up with a hundred, you know, in order to close that gap, you know, in order to stretch that finite resource further, having these conversations at every step of the design and build process will allow us to take that thousand feet of highly precious American chestnut 
and get a better yield and reduce the waste quotient. I spoke to a uh, architect this morning that that uh, asked for pre-loved lumber, which uh, <laughs> which I had honestly never heard before. So you know, whatever that means, uh, there are architects, <laughs> you know, that are. Um, I'm not sure I want to know what that means. <laughs> Uh, but there are architects that do really like the tension between the old wood and whatever modern design they're working with in the space. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, sometimes it's mad, it's it's fitting into a historical uh, or traditional design. But uh, as often, you know, they like the element of having this material that is, you know, got a backstory that's uh, pre-loved, I guess, and yeah. uh, sure, and incorporating it. But uh, and oftentimes it's 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 like a homeowner that has the most interest and the architect is sort of pursuing the material at the uh, request of, right. of a homeowner. And it's yeah, the ultimate client. Yeah. Yeah. And it's um, it's I think that person that has the firsthand experience that's going to be living with the woods where maybe the story, um, you know, may have the most value. Um, yeah, to be a project agreed. and it's, uh, you know, it's hard to put a value on that, uh, for them, but, um, uh, uh, but yeah, it's that whatever it is in the backstory and for us, it's the backstory of an old building, uh, which may have been around for, you know, a hundred or more years. And then the, um, you know, the tree itself, uh, which may have been, you know, three, 300 years or more. Oh, we supply sure. um, samples lately to a lab up at Columbia that does the dendrochronology uh, on the woods. Uh-huh. And, you know, that's another area that's really interested in these old timbers because they can't, you know, get trees uh, with with rings, uh, you know, that date back that long. Uh, so, uh, you know, with their with their analysis of the wood, you know, that kind of adds another layer. Uh, to the backstory of the wood, uh, which agreed, yeah, uh, which I guess makes yeah, a I, difference between what we were talking about, like uh, recently reclaimed wood and antique wood. Uh, you know, from an environmental standpoint, uh, there's really no difference. Uh, you know, you're, you know, you're theoretically, you know, preventing uh, felling new trees or keeping wood out of the landfill. Um, the environmental impact of reclaimed wood, you know, in the scheme of things, isn't really, um, you know, doesn't really do a whole lot, which, you know, maybe yeah, contribute it's, to the... It's not terribly significant. Yeah, to the some skepticism about the material, but, um, you know, as a material... Well, I know... Yeah. One of the, one of the things that I find particularly interesting, especially when we're talking industrial or industrially reclaimed, is I don't think a lot of people understood just how much of a role wood played in the industrial revolution and in manufacturing. Mm-hmm. Um, we're so used to you know modern manufacturing, and I'm talking the silicon age, you know, clean rooms and steel and glass and all that stuff, and um, you know the idea of these these industrial factories that were entirely with wood. You know, mm-hmm. it was not just the floor they were walking on, but the 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 machines the you know, we talk about crane mats and steel mills and things like that. The amount of wood that was being used in the actual manufacturing process itself is really very unknown. Mm-hmm. Um, 
tank wood. I, that was a new one to me. You, know, you think tanks and you think, you know, stainless steel. Um, you can go into any microbrewery and craft brewery and they have those big stainless steel distillery tanks, um, brewing tanks, fermentation tanks. That's the word I'm looking for. All the craft brewers out there are rolling their eyes at me. <laughs> Um, we just, we don't think of them as being wood, you know, other than like barrels for, for creating whiskey and, and, and wine and the actual tannin process that makes that possible. So it is, it is very interesting and it kind of gives people this, uh, insight into this amazing, magnificent, you know, pr- material, mm-hmm. um, and, and, and how much of a role it actually played in, the society that exists today. I'm certainly waxing philosophical here, but um, I, I think that the more that uh, the more understanding that we can we can have over that, and and just what a role these woods played. I think the more people will stop balking at how much, <laughs> how much does that cost? Right. Um, you know, this is this is a finite and and unique material that we're looking at. So why don't we uh, land this whole plane by um, tell us how people can find out more uh, about you. Alan, why don't you go first? Um, I guess like most places, you know, the website, um, we're at sawkill.nyc. And um, Jim mentioned we did a book a couple of years back uh, that's available on, you know, wherever books are sold, I guess, or they say. Yeah. And there's information on your website about it as well. Yeah. Yeah. So good place to go. How about you, Klaus? Uh, Give us the details. Same here. Uh, we have a website, armster.com. We also have a Instagram, uh, armster underscore reclaimed underscore lumber. And, um, and uh, I think that's pretty much it. Other than that, you can give me a call and talk about reclaimed wood. <laughs> Apparently we can do that. <laughs> Apparently we're pretty good at doing that right now. <laughs> as I look at the time on my, uh, my recording at this sure. point. So, well, I mean, I, I could keep going. I've got a lot that I, I want to say, but I also uh, recognize that we don't want this to be a three hour long podcast. So um, I, I will say, I think this is a to be continued um, conversation. I think more needs to be said about this. More people need to get excited about it again. It was really, really exciting. And then it started to die off and it's kind of been in this undercurrent um, becoming very, very niche. Mm-hmm. And I, I can see supply chain issues whether COVID related or not, um, could possibly shine a light back on the reclaimed industry. Um, the idea of all of the urban harvesting I've been talking about and the micro sawmills and a grassroot lumber industry, I think is also going to shine a light back on, on reclaimed lumber. Not that it's really been gone, but shine a brighter light. Um, so I'm, I'm looking forward to, to seeing more of this, um, showing up both in, in my personal work, but also professionally as well. So, Thank you. Thank you to you both um, for taking so much time and, and, and really cluing in a guy that didn't know as much as he thought he did about reclaiming. <laughs> well, thank yeah, you, thanks, Shannon. Think, thanks for oh, – go ahead, Alan. Yeah, no, I agree. There's, uh, I think, you know, there's always more to say, it seems, on all the, on all the podcasts. But, um, you know, we covered a lot of ground and sure. we appreciate, yeah, your interest. Yeah, and I would say thank you as well <clears throat> for giving us the opportunity to talk about it. And uh, you know, it's been it's been oh, fun. Yeah. And and uh, yeah, it is it is um, it's something that I think you're right. It, it's kind of it peaked a little bit, and then it's kind of come back down. But I think it has sort of found a little little uh, niche now where it seems to just keep moving along. And and uh, we'll keep doing our part. But yeah, thank you again for for that. That's it's terrific to get. Sure. 
And, and I specifically want to thank you for the authenticity of the running sawmill on the background. It's, it's very faint, but if you know what to listen for. Yeah, it's a straight line rip spot. That adds a yeah, cer- absolutely. Oh. Yeah. There's a certain amount of credibility to this conversation <laughs> and the fact that right, before we started this, I told Alan, I do not record from the yard because all you will hear is forklift beeping noises all day long and whining molders screaming in the well, background. I told them that we like couldn't that. we couldn't operate the planer while I was doing it, but I thought the ripsaw was a little quieter, <laughs> so I thought we'd be okay. It's further away, too. So, But anyway, I didn't know it was Can't coming get through. Away from those yeah. anyway, well, then I'll make yeah. Alan very happy when I close this podcast by saying, folks, go buy some reclaimed wood. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a little tug of cheek, but it was... <laughs> <laughs> no, I like it. I like it. That was the subject line of our of our email exchange leading up to oh, this. Perfect. Maybe you could say go buy reclaim wood. So <laughs>